there, Marketing Sweats friends. We're back with season three of our show, one that is shaping up to look back and look forward about where the marketing, media, and advertising industry has been and where it's going. Releasing the first episode of any season is a challenge for me. We record episodes one at a time, so we have a theme in mind, but we never really know how closely the content will hit the mark. Well, it was clear to me as I recorded this episode that I wanted to share it with you first out of the gate. I found someone with a unique point of view, and I think she can really help you. Janae Fromm is a speaker, consultant, trainer, coach, and personal development leader who helps individuals and organizations give their best, not just their most. Let's be honest, COVID has felt like such a busy time. We keep taking on more, we keep feeling further apart, and Janae sees this trend. In addition to her day job, Janae is founder of Awesome Climbs and has perspective on taking personal development to a new level. She even helps teams climb Mount Kilimanjaro in Tanzania, Africa as a means of real growth and change. Her lessons are powerful and she keeps reinventing herself. I met Janae through our Amen Network and ran across her again through our season two guest, Ali Mahaffey. Allie hired Janae to be her agency life coach, working through a program they call the Connected Manager Initiative. The idea being that connection, especially a strong one with leaders, creates a real level of engagement, retention, and even business growth for our organizations. Through her study and knowledge of neuroscience, combined with her irreverent sense of humor and powerful storytelling, Janae truly loves to help others create a life of meaning consistent with who they're meant to be. I'm so excited to share this entire season with you, but especially this one interview. Enjoy what you hear, and I'll see you on the other side. I am so excited to talk to you. I have been following your work for quite some time, as you know, through the Amen Network and some of our partners that you've worked with there. I would love for you to start just by introducing yourself and telling our audience just a little bit about your professional journey. Well, I'm really happy to be here and be with you. It's great to see you and to be a part of this. My professional journey is one of many crooked paths. I think that's kind of my whole life. So it's consistent. Um, yes. But probably the most interesting thing is that even though I do most of my work with creative industries, marketing, advertising, publishing, that type of thing, I started out with a degree in science. I actually have a degree in biology with an emphasis in molecular genetics. Oh my gosh. So, <laughs> right. It's more, it sounds more impressive than it is. Um, <laughs> I think the reason why I've always loved science is because I've always trying to understand how things work. I ha got that science degree with really no plan of what I was going to do with it because I was 20 and sure that, that's how Not you roll. Right. right. When I graduated, there wasn't a lot going on unless I wanted to go into research. I worked for a few years as an environmental scientist doing some of that stuff. And then I started doing a lot of freelance writing and I don't know, I bounced around in a lot of different things. Very early, somewhat early in my career, I landed in advertising and that was through a weird set of circumstances. But I started working in the advertising world and actually in PR. And I was working with all of these people who were in so many ways creative geniuses, which right. I loved being around. Right. But in other ways, they were just emotional idiots. <laughs> <laughs> and I say that with love because I love, I love creative people, but sure, it seemed like there was a lot of this behavior that was not supporting the outcomes. So sure. I saw people acting in a way that was leading them to the opposite of what they actually wanted, right? They would have their work challenged or their ideas challenged, or they'd struggle with clients or something. And they would be behaving in ways that weren't getting them what they wanted. And I started really trying to explore why was that? Was there a science reason behind it? Was there a, a physiological or, or a brain science reason behind it? And that's really when I kind of stumbled on the field of emotional intelligence, which this would have been jeepers 20 plus years ago, late nineties or so, which the field was very young. I mean, I mean, emotional intelligence has been around forever, right? For as long right, as we've right. had <laughs> but people studying it and understanding it and applying it to business was fairly young. And 
I just became fascinated with that. Started studying a lot more about emotions and the neuroscience of emotions and and how they will often lead us to the opposite of what we want and the the brain reasons for that. And that really started me kind of on this path of what I do now, which is a lot of leadership consulting. I do some speaking conferences and things like that. And then working with companies to figure out how to get the the very best out of their people versus the very most out of their people, which is kind of how jobs are set up right now is to get sure. the most out of people versus the best. Well, and I love that mantra. You know that. I've asked you to talk about that yeah. at length. But let me dive back to this issue of emotional intelligence. I think that's a buzzword a lot of people throw around when maybe we don't actually understand what it means. Talk a little bit about sort of the definition of that for you and how you've sort of grown into that role. Well, I would say very simply, emotional intelligence is the ability to use our emotions to aid us and not distract us. For many years in business, we heard things like, you know, this is business, leave your emotions at the door or leave your emotions out of it, which is absolutely 100% wrong. (laughs) Uh, What we know about emotions is that we simply cannot leave them out of situations besides the fact that it's emotions that make life worth living. Sure. sure. I don't want a life without emotions. Besides that, decisions are actually made in the emotional center of our brain, in the amygdala. So people that don't have their emotions due to various reasons that have damage to their amygdala can't make decisions. So what we should be doing is bringing emotion into it. Mm. We do it anyway. Everybody knows that. Anybody who's ever bought a house, like, Missy, have you ever bought a house? I have. I bought several. Okay. So your last house, when did you decide that that was your house? Gosh, I lost my house in a tornado and I lived there in in this new house for six months in the basement of my grandma. It was my grandmother's home. So I had a natural emotion towards it being home because it was my grandma's. And so I ended up purchasing it. Yep. And most people will tell me when they buy a house that they knew in the first, right when I walked in the front door, or I knew within the first 10 seconds, that was our home. Right. That is not a logical decision. No. no. Right. That's what happens is, and then you spend the rest of the time justifying your decision, right? You spend the rest of the time saying, well, I can live without that and I can live without this and, or this is fine. And, and that's how all decisions are made. So I think emotional intelligence is really about creating space around circumstances and decisions so that you can make the decision that will lead you to what you want rather than to the opposite of what you want. I love that. Well, and I think I shared with you, I had my um, executive coach on last season and season two, and she talks a lot about the science of the brain where your thoughts lead to feelings, lead to actions. And I think once you can connect those things, what am I thinking that's making me feel this way? Because to your point in marketing, you got to get over the logic to meet the emotion that gets somebody to act. And I think that's just a really good marketing principle beyond just leadership development and personal awareness. Yeah. The stuff that we're so good at in marketing, we're so bad at applying it to ourselves, (laughs) right? Like it's the same stuff. Like I think all the time about how we talk all the time about telling the story, right? What's the story and tell the story. And yet we fail to see how we are telling ourselves stories all the time. And it's those stories that mess us up, right? It's not, I just, I've got selling a house on the brain because I'm in the process of selling my house. And we just went through the inspection process, which I mean, that is one of the worst. (laughs) I got defensive, you know, but I realized, you know, the whole story I was telling myself was they're trying to take advantage of me. They're regretting that they made an offer above asking. I created this whole story that was going, if I continued down that path, was going to lead me to the exact opposite of what I want, which is to get this deal closed and get done with this. So those stories, the thinking and those stories we tell ourselves, that's the work of emotional intelligence of how do I interrupt that story, create some more space, and then make a decision that gets me what I ultimately need or want. How do you believe 
in the importance of this leadership development as it relates to working in a marketing and advertising field. You and I had a a conversation about how sometimes when you can't get executive teams aligned, it makes the marketing work that much harder. So talk about how your work at an agency level or with the brand side works to help with leadership so that we can be that much better at our jobs. So for me in my business, I made a decision a few years ago that I still have trouble sticking to, but the decision was that I wouldn't work with companies and leaders who didn't have the same value system and didn't philosophically believe what I'm trying to teach and what I'm trying to do. And that sounds great when you're just sitting at your dining room table, writing out your mission and your philosophy for your business. When it really is a challenge is when you have a potential client in front of you And you know what the bank account balance is and you have an opportunity there to financially meet some goals, but you know that philosophically it will take me in another direction. Right. And I see that with my clients all the time, right? I, I see the fear of being niche. I see the fear of saying we can't do that. I see the fear of being demanding of their clients. I see that and I understand that because I'm the same way. I will say that I've never seen someone regret saying no to business that doesn't align. But I have often seen people, me included, regret saying yes to that business. Right, right. Yeah, no, that makes good sense in terms of finding people that are philosophically aligned. I'm curious, though, let's back up a minute. So on a very personal level, what got you into this work? What was it about your, you know, upbringing or your parents or what was it that set you down the path to care about brain science and and what makes people tick? Well, we have to give most of the credit to my dad and then probably the rest of it to my mom. When I was a year old, my sister was two years old. My father, our father was diagnosed with lymphoma, blood cancer. And at that time, so that would have been in 1970, they told him maybe he'd live five years. He ended up living 14 more years. He died when I was 15. And what that did for my father and my mother both was it set them on a path of intention. So my dad, it's hard. Looking back, I I can try to piece things together, but I I think what happened was he decided he was going to build into his kids the most that he could, just pour into us. And so everything was a life lesson with my dad. Everything we did, you could not, (laughs) you couldn't just make a mistake. You couldn't just do something wrong. It was, here's the lesson and here's the why. And so I grew up with a father who was constantly teaching and searching and explaining and talking about human behavior and why we do what we do. And he was the one that would say, if I would get angry, he would say, if you're carrying around a bucket of vinegar and someone bumps you, what's going to spill out? Right. Vinegar. But if you're carrying around a bucket of sweet, cool water and someone bumps you, what's going to... Now, I have all kinds of issues with codependency probably because of that. (laughs) But those are the kind of things that I heard from a very young age. So... I had a curiosity about that. And then, of course, losing my dad at that age, at 15, was horrible. I had to become very self-sufficient. My dad died. My sister went to college. My mom had to go to work full-time. I went from being this very extroverted child to incredibly introverted and incredibly self-sufficient. So I think because of that, I I have an understanding of a lot of different Mm. personalities And then I've had my own stuff. I've had chronic pain since I was about 18, 19 years old. When I was 35, I was diagnosed with the same cancer that my father had and went through that and all the joys of that and all the lessons of that. So I think not wanting to live a shallow life, it's very important to me that people live life with meaning. In fact, I, I often say that my personal purpose statement is I am here to help people become who they're meant to be. So they live a life with meaning and not an empty existence. Wow. That's why I believe I exist. The work that I do is the way in which I do that, but that's my goal. And I think it was my father's goal too. I really do. I think he wanted to live a life of meaning and he instilled that in me. 
as I was hearing you talk through that, it was clear your dad instilled in you the ability to tap into your emotions at a young age. But yet when the bad things happened, it's still our natural tendency to shove those down, right? And to cover them up and to sort of not interact with the world as much. How do you see these lessons come to life and how do they translate into some of your speaking topics or things you teach about? As far as speaking topics go, I always laugh. I say there's only one talk, but there's like 12 different titles. Sure. I think that I think we all have one message that we're giving the world. We each have our own individual message. And mine's really about that authentic life and about living a life with meaning and to really wrap your arms around the things that are difficult. I, I think that we get better during hard times, but most of us avoid hard times. To me, it's about choosing mm. hard things so that life doesn't choose them for you and then growing through that. So that's kind of how the speaking topics work. As far as the work I do within companies, that's really about building connection Mm. and relationship and teaching companies that emotions are good business. And that I think is a direct result of me believing a couple things. One, I believe people are better when they're authentic. Two, I believe people need to be connected to each other genuinely because I think you get the best out of people when you're connected, that whole best and most thing. Right. And then to maybe add another, I believe that when you've been given authority, I believe that you have responsibility. So I look at companies as you have authority over these people, but you also have a responsibility to them uh, to provide for them in significant emotional ways. Right. Let's take that individual piece first. So when I went out and I researched you on your website, you talk about the hard things, right? You even do some really challenging exercises with your clients that you're trying to get to focus on growth and development. Talk about what that's looked like in your life. You know, you mentioned you're a runner, you've climbed mountains. Talk about how those hard experiences change people. So if I were to say to you or anyone listening, if I say, tell me about a time in your life of of significant personal growth. Mm. You're probably not going to say, I took this really good seminar (laughs) and got a really great binder and read through the handouts and I grew, right? Or you're not going to say, as much as this podcast is fantastic, you're not going to say, I listened to this podcast and man, my personal growth shot through the (laughs) room. The personal growth comes from hard things. It comes from challenge. It comes from stepping outside of our comfort zone. I've done individual coaching for a number of years. And what I have found is that when people grow is when they're going through something very hard. Right. So what I wanted to create was an environment in which people were stretching themselves physically and having some sort of challenge, emotional, physical challenge while they're working on themselves, because that's what worked for me. When I went through my cancer, significant growth, when I've done training for endurance events, Ironmans that I've done and things like that, significant growth, my chronic pain, my divorce, a number of miscarriages, a failed adoption. I could just go on and on and on. And every one of those things, while terrible, resulted in significant personal growth. So my husband and I created an experience where we take people up Mount Kilimanjaro in Tanzania, Africa. We climb Mount Kilimanjaro, which is one of the seven summits. So significant bragging rights. Right. Totally. And we then facilitate life lessons along the way. Honestly, the mountain is the teacher in that situation. We just kind of create the environment and get out of the way and let the teacher do her job. Because when you do something that big, it changes you. Most people don't have that kind of experience. And I always say, you know, your, your bullshit doesn't work in Africa. You can bring all that to it, but at all of your excuses and all of your comfort needs and all that, it just doesn't work over there. So people end up in a position within the first 24 to 36 hours of that climb Mm. that it would take me as a coach six months, maybe longer to get them to face some of those things. Yeah. Well, as a bit of a thrill seeker myself and a marathon runner, I seek out these hard experiences. But you and I also spoke about not everybody wants to grow and change at that level. It's interesting. A lot of people, when I say, you know, you know, we take people up Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa, they say, oh, I would love to do that. 
they don't really want to do it. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. You're right. A lot of people don't want to get uncomfortable. I understand not wanting to camp out and not shower for seven days. I get it. It's the least of your worries when you're there. But I think that's true in life. People don't want to grow and change, right? They want the results of change. They, they want the results of growth, but they don't actually want to change. No, it sounds like an unbelievable experience. And like you said, just being in Africa and getting out of our sort of privileged life changes you, allows you to see some, some things differently, I'm sure. It really does. When you realize that that coffee that you get on the way to work every day, well, no one's going to work anymore. The coffee that you used to get on the way to work every day is the same as a daily salary for a porter who's carrying all your gear up the mountain. That's a humbling experience. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll never forget in my executive MBA when I was 25 years old, they took us to India and we got the chance to visit a village that had been washed away by a tsunami. And so it's those kinds of experiences that you go into a hut and they offer coffee and tea and anything they have, and you have nothing to offer in return. It just totally changes the way you see humanity. I'm sure you have lots of those kinds of experiences along the way. It's not unusual. Of course, we've gone now for a number of years. We have friends there that we consider family, but it's not unusual to be in Tanzania, to be invited into someone's home and they'll serve you a meal and they won't eat because there's not enough food for them. That's part of the hospitality and and the generosity and it just gets you right in the heart space, right? Yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing that because I'm a big believer that you sort of have to do your personal work before you can be sort of an effective leader and bring people together. I want to transition back into the work you do with businesses and and this idea about connectivity. Say a bit more about what that looks like in terms of some of the engagements and sort of how you make it practical. Sure. So the, the challenge is always that, making it practical, right? It's taking concepts that are big, life-changing, life-altering, mushy, no hard edges kind of concepts and turning it into a program that someone's going to buy, right? right. <laughs> like the, that has hard edges and well-defined scope. That's been the challenge. And it's always been a challenge for me because I'm much more of an organic type of uh, worker. I just go where it goes. But within the last few years, I've been able to refine it into a product that's called the Connected Manager Program. The idea being that manager is where it's at. Uh, Gallup has come out with a lot of statistics around that, which I can't quote, but I should be able to, (laughs) about how the single greatest factor in engagement is the manager. Right. We all know that. I mean, we've all been in jobs where we loved the work, but couldn't stand the complete nut job that we worked for. And more than half of the people I know have quit a job because of a a bad manager. So the qualities of the manager are where I believe companies should be investing. And the Connected Manager Program helps a company then measure, develop, and hold accountable managers for things that are what you talked about, the personal side of it. So we're talking about things like vulnerability, Mm -hmm. approachability, tactfulness, the ability to coach, empathy, compassion, all of those things, which are the be part of leadership rather than the do part of leadership. Sure. The character qualities of a good manager or a good leader. I love that. Say more about how you teach that. Or is it, do you, do you teach concepts or do you just put it into practice and have it sort of bubble up organically through their interactions? Back to what we were talking about before, about you have to have that buy-in from leadership, right? right. So there has to first be executive level leadership that buys off on this. It says, yes, we want to have managers that first manage the people and then manage the client or build first into the people, that that is the number one thing, that that's how we're going to be a powerful business is that if our managers are connected to the people that they manage, they manage people, not projects. If they buy off on that, and if I ask them hard questions like, so you're telling me your top performer, if they're not connected to the people that they manage, you're willing to get rid of them, like Mm -hmm. those hard things. Right. And if they say yes, and if we can move forward, then I know that, you know, we, but there's probably some managers within your organization that are already really good at this. Sure. Comes naturally. Mediocre. Right. And maybe there's a couple that probably snuck in during a time of stress 
and we had to get somebody on that account. Yeah. And we all know who it is and we've been managing around it and right. all that. So the first thing we do is we do assessments and the assessment then tells us and tells the person themselves, here's what we're going to be measuring you on. Do you buy into this? Because if, if you haven't told your managers this, if you haven't been measuring them on something like vulnerability, you got to first tell them that that's something you're going to do. Right. And then start measuring on it and then give them a chance to opt in or opt out and then give them a chance to improve and then measure again mm-hmm. and then set a criteria. And if they don't meet it, then you have an exit plan. Do you find, I know you have eight qualities of a connected manager, which you mentioned some of them there. If somebody is deficient in one of those areas, let's say that I can be really vulnerable, but I struggle to coach. As they turn to focus on the thing that maybe they need to work on, did the others come along or do some fall back? How do you keep them really well-rounded in that way? That's a great question. Most of these qualities, as you know, are what I would call character qualities in a lot of ways. I have found that when people are working on something that they need to get better at, it has a tendency to elevate other things as well, right? That's awesome. If I'm going to work on vulnerability, I'm going to be asking myself, why am I not vulnerable? What scares me about that? Why am I reluctant to be myself? Where else is that going to help me? It's going to help me with empathy. It's going to help me with compassion. It's going to help me with my ability to coach because I'll be able to relate all of those things. There's the eight qualities of connected managers, but then there's the foundational characteristics, which are things like the ability to relate and positivity and all those type of things that are underneath that. And those are the things that I teach. That is so cool. So I'll, I'll share some of my own dirt on this. Okay, Janae, maybe you can coach me from a side. So I have been working on what makes me lack that vulnerability, right? And it's typically this fear of somebody else controlling me or a fear of failure. And so now that I can see those things, I can almost hold them in the air, right? Like I can feel that emotion, what's going on and how do we coach ourselves out of it in the moment so we don't look like an a-hole, right? Is that the kind of work you do for companies? And, And tell me some like success stories. What have you seen transform as leaders begin to model these behaviors? Yeah. So when we do the work of connected manager, we're talking about exactly what you just said. So we're saying, what are the facts? Like, what are the facts around you being or not being vulnerable? And I don't mean, what are the stories? I mean, what are the actual facts? Then what are the stories around that? You're telling yourself something about that, right? So what's that story? What are your feelings? And then what do you actually want? And so when we when we separate out we're able to see, okay, I see this pattern. And you can do that individually. You can do that as a team, right? You can take a team and say, what are the facts? What are the stories we're telling ourselves as a team? That same mush separator works for all of those things. You can do that for a leadership team, for an entire company. You can do all of that. And now I've lost the question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, that's what I wanted you to sort of unpack for me is how that happens sort of organically. It sounds like you do it both individually or with teams. And then I was asking for a success story. How have you seen culture transform because people have that shared language of doing their work together? Yeah, well, we've got some we. I don't know who that is. I, you know, I've had some neat success stories of working with clients that are bought off on this and apply it and meet all the criteria, right? The leadership is on board and then making changes along the way that have seen significant increases in their bottom line, in their engagement scores and all of that, which is exciting for me because sometimes, at least the way I'm wired, I'm a follow my gut type of person. Right. So- I like that. I I mean, I believe in the work that I do, but it's nice to have some numbers behind it, right? That say this actually works. It makes sense, even though it it feels to some people so squishy when we're Mm. talking about empathy and vulnerability and trustworthiness, It, it feels like squishy. And like, we always called those soft skills, which I hate that term. Right. But Even though it feels like that, if you think about it, you're talking about the things that allow you to connect with another person. And when you're connected to another person, that's when you're getting the best. And when people are giving their best, that's when you start to make significant leaps in your business. We're dealing with this whole Corona thing right now, coronavirus and COVID-19. 
we have to get the best out of our people. We will not survive by getting the most out of people. We might survive for a little bit, but we need people to start thinking differently. We got to solve problems in a brand new way. This whole idea of looking back to look forward, right? I love the idea of looking back to know what your values are and to know what's significant to you and what's meaningful and what your mission is. But if you look back to solve problems in the same way, you're not going to succeed because I don't think because we have to solve problems differently. There are brand new problems and they need brand new solutions. And in order to do that, our people have to be aggressive, aggressively creative. They have to take care of themselves. They have to see things in a new and different way, not be scared to fail. Right. I mean, do you know of anyone who is disconnected from their manager that is also not scared to fail? No way. The only time in my whole life I've ever felt free to fail is when I've been super connected and felt super supported. That's the only time. And so that's where I think right now it's so important that we get the best out of people through that connection. You and I were talking a little bit about that last time we jumped on the phone and and you were sharing some statistics with me that I thought was really eye-opening just about people's depression level from a year ago to where the country ranks today, I would say I would put myself in that camp. The difference between me is I dig in when I'm in that space to figure out creativity and where we want to go from here. Not everybody sort of has the capacity to sort of go there when they're sad. So what are you seeing right now when you when you think about look ahead, look ahead to be creative on problems we can't see right now, but everybody's so sad in the process. Where do you start? Yeah, it's interesting to me that you say you dig in and you get more creative if this were a coaching session, which it's not. Oh, it can be a coaching session. <laughs> <laughs> but I would I would challenge you to think, you know, how long can you do that? For how yeah. long will you be able to do that in this state? Because everything is a bank account, right? Your energy is a bank account. There's deposits and there's withdrawals. And thankfully, a lot of people had real healthy bank accounts going into this, but not everybody did. And you're right. The numbers are shocking in terms of people experiencing depression and symptoms of anxiety disorder right now that didn't, you know, a year ago. And I think this is where I've started moving into trying to do some work with some of my clients around companies providing self-care and the space for it and the the process for it and actually an expectation of self-care because I don't think we're going to be able to get the best out of people, like you said, when they're sad. And what's happening, what I am hearing is companies are doing some things. They're saying, we know this is terrible and gosh, you're going through a lot. And as parents, you're freaked out about your kids going back to school and that's really terrible. And we're really sorry about that. Also, by the way, we need you to work a lot harder than you ever have. And we need you to dig in and they're sending conflicting messages. That's a really dangerous place to be in terms of leadership. Also, we're disconnected from our people. We're not seeing them in the hallways. We're probably not doing our one-on-ones the way we should. And so we're going to lose them. They're going to start drifting and we're not going to know it. And they're not going to tell us. And that's where I'm concerned. Things are still working fairly well. We're getting work out the door. Some of my clients are doing great. This has just been a great business opportunity for them. What I worry about is the long-term effects of being disconnected from people and what that's going to do to our business long-term. I love that you're thinking about this and helping companies through it. When I said that I dig in, I love that you challenged me on that because you can only do those things for so long, right? My coach just said to me the other day, Misty, every time you dig in this hard, you're going to retreat and you have to go take a three-day vacation just to come back to the table because your energy is so depleted. You have to learn strategies in the moment to change your mindset, to be able to have that energy and sustain it. And it sounds like that's the exact kind of work you want to help companies do, Janae, is like build that culture in the moment so that you don't find people jumping ship. Yeah. I think that if we're not making regular deposits and helping people make regular deposits into their energy account, into their self-care account, we're going to bankrupt people. I was going to say, I love that analogy because I know you spoke about that at a conference recently. And actually, our managers at Semanal latched onto that, this idea that if you want to take deposits out of people to get them to do more work, you have to continually to refill it, right? Exactly. So the way I think of it is just like I think of my bank account. 
there's deposits and there's withdrawals. I try to keep a certain level in that account, right? Withdrawals are not bad. Like uh, I like spending money. I like spending energy. I that it allows me to do things that I want to do in my life. The problem is if there's not enough deposits, right? So when my balance gets a little low in my bank account, I do one of two things. I either decrease the withdrawals or I increase the deposits. Ideally, I do both. And then I try to build that back up. So right now, where are we with people with their emotional health? I would say that they are in a deficit. Most people have had more withdrawals over the last six months than they've had deposits. Now, some of my clients, thankfully, we'd been working on putting deposits into people, deposits of connection, deposits of energy, deposits of empathy, all of that for a while. And so they've been able to draw on that a little bit, but that can't last forever. If we're honest, I think we're coming to the end of that. I think we're getting to an overdraft situation pretty soon here where if we're not helping people put those deposits back in, in significant, new, different, creative ways, I think we're going to see people go bankrupt. So if I'm a leader listening to this whole conversation and I'm like, yeah, that's right where we are. I see this happening in my organization. Maybe I'm letting it happen. Maybe I don't have the ability to hire Janae tomorrow. What are some practical things that I can start doing right now to start being there for people? Number one, it's your own self-care. So I've been challenging the leaders that I work with. Let's look inward first. Are you okay? And if you're not okay, you need to say you're not okay and you need to ask for help. I'm really worried, Missy, about the state of some of our leadership because they're so very concerned about the people that are working for them and they're so very concerned about their business and I love them for that. But we're not all okay. And I can tell you in my own life, the first three months of this pandemic were incredibly difficult for me. I was not okay. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm talking things like drinking every night. I'm talking about eating as if it was my job. I, right. Numb the pain. Just anything. Yeah. Anything. And in a very dark place. And it's Once you're down there, it is so hard to climb out by yourself. So the first thing to do is to raise your hand as a leader who's always had it together, who's never needed any other help, to raise your hand and to say, I need help and to figure that out. There's plenty of help available out there. That's number one. Okay. If you're okay there, then number two is your inner circle. What's going on with the people directly under your influence? Are they okay? How can you build into them? And then we just keep cascading out from there. I don't think there's some sort of blanket thing you can do to make this okay for everyone. I think it's going to be individual to individual, connecting genuinely, being significant listeners to people. And providing space for them to take care of themselves as well. If I were in charge of a company other than my own, which I only have one employee, me, (laughs) and, and I'm terrible to work with. If I was in charge of a company, I would set up something that was like an hour a week where everybody gets on a Zoom call and all we do is we talk about how we're doing We go into breakout rooms and it's expected and we just have moments of connection. Right. Because a lot of people right now are hiding. Yeah. They really are. Well, I love that you say admit, name it, that you're not okay, because I think that models what you want in other people. But if you're a leader and you see somebody that's not okay, and I'm sure you teach this, how do you approach them in a way that gets them to share without feeling defensive? I have this thing about staying in your lane. Okay. I think it's because I've been through some some cruddy things in my life and how disingenuous it feels when people get out of their lane and kind of mm-hmm. come into yours. Do you know what I mean by that? Like, yeah. we're not that close where you need <laughs> to be bringing me a casserole. Like, that seems weird. Like, right. because I have a thing about authenticity. So the first thing, maybe I would say that, but if you have that relationship, right, this is why it's so important to build these relationships. Because if you have that relationship, I think it's as simple as, are you okay? It's, yeah. it's having that genuine conversation and not having the answers. Oh my gosh, this is probably the, the big thing. I think we as leaders, we think we're supposed to have the answers. And so we don't initiate conversations that scare us because we don't know what to tell people. Right. And in reality, it's not your job to solve problems for people. It's your job to create space 
so that they can find the solution themselves. So it's as simple as asking the question, are you doing okay? Right. And when they say, no, I'm not, you say, can you tell me more about that? Right. What's that look like for you right now? Not here's the EAP number that you can call. (laughs) Absolutely. I got um, a question posed to me the other day about whether I believe more strongly in teaching the concepts and principles of leadership or whether I believe in what you just said, that coaching is more effective, right? Letting the other person drive the conversation and deal with their own stuff. What have you seen work better? Is it both? Do they have to go in order? I see managers specifically and leaders go to one of two ends of a spectrum when they're managing. They either go to the counseling end where they're listening and they are talking about why something happened and they're providing a lot of space and the focus is on the why. Or I see them go to the supervising side where it's, let me tell you what you did wrong and let me tell you how you need to fix it. The results of counseling is the problem is understood and the results of supervising is that the problem is fixed. However, the results of both of those mean that that person's going to return when they need that solution again. In the middle somewhere is where I put coaching. And I don't see a lot of people comfortable with the skills of coaching, even when they're comfortable with the B of coaching, the qualities of a coach, but they don't understand the skills of coaching, the skills of creating space, of recognizing a coaching moment. A lot of my managers I work with, they're great coaches, but they miss it. They just miss coaching moments and they go to supervising or they go to counseling instead of saying, oh, wait, this is a moment I could coach. Once you give them the skills of how to recognize coaching moments and step into them, of how to create space, of how to help someone orient towards action, even just those three things as skills Then they'll start coaching more because they understand it, they see it, that they already have those qualities of a coach as a foundation. Yeah, I think you have to understand the models to be able to do the recognition to then practice the coaching. So totally agree. All right. One more question before I ask you some bigger picture philosophy stuff. I want to go back to where you were on the COVID situation. So, so many of us as business owners or leaders are trying to figure out what does it look like when we go back? And something you said to me is like, don't just take what you were doing and make it virtual. You said, go back to the reason you were doing it in the first place. So what does that mean? The analogy I use for this, I don't know if I told you about this, Misty, about my bike and the pedal falling off of my bike. No, I I don't think I heard this one. Okay, so my husband was training for a marathon and I was doing the support ride. And those of you who know about training, you always try to get someone to do support so that you don't have to carry all your bottles and everything with you. So he was running, I don't know, 20 miles that day. And I was riding this steel beach cruiser behind him that had water bottles and goo. And as we're going along, suddenly the pedal, actually the pedal and the crank, the whole thing just boom, fell off my bike just fell off. And I didn't want him to stop. So I'm like, keep going. I'll figure it out. I'll catch up. (laughs) Well, very quickly, I was like, I can't figure this out. I don't know what this is. (laughs) And so I spent about 20 minutes, 40 minutes trying to figure out how to, because I didn't have the screw to screw it back on. You know, I used a stick to try to put the crank back on all this kind of stuff. It wasn't until I asked myself, What's the real problem here? The problem is not that the pedal and the crank fell off. The problem is that I have no way to turn the big wheels on this bike to keep it moving. And that's when the solution presented itself was that all I needed to do was just tie my other foot to that other pedal. And then I could push and pull and one leg drill that thing all the way back to where we started, which I did. And my quad was like twice the size when I got back. But I was able to move the bike. I was only able to do that was because I went back to the pedal is the solution to the original problem of how do we move the bike forward. Right. What I see right now is, and my business included, when this whole thing started, everybody used a virtual solution. Oh, I usually train, facilitate in front of a group. I guess I'll just facilitate virtually. Conventions are now being done virtually. Right. And what's interesting to me is that all of those things, television programs, school, my business, training in front of people, facilitation, those were solutions to problems. They were not problems themselves. Mm. Those were solutions to problems. Things change when you go back to the original problem and say, wait, what was this originally a solution for? So for me, teaching people in person in classes or doing facilitation in person was the solution for how do I help people give their best and not their most at work? That was the solution. 
Mm-hmm. So now, so just doing that virtually, I mean, it might be a part of it, but I have to go back as a business person to the original problem and say, now, how do I do that? Now, right. how do I help people? And right. by asking myself that question, I've developed a whole nother aspect of my business and I'm headed down that path. We need to be brave enough as business people to let go of current solutions, to go back to the original problem and say, how will we do that now? The people who do that the quickest are the ones that are going to be the most successful. And that's so true for marketers. That's where you're going to lead your clients is is to say, wait a minute, this was the solution originally. Mm. What was the problem? Well, and what I hear when you say that, Janae, is that don't just change the how. There's space to change the what. I think that there's ways to reinvent ourselves right now. Mayo Clinic. Did I talk to you about Mayo Clinic? Mayo Clinic does a thing where they, it's like a three week clinic that people who, who are in chronic pain can go to. And what they teach is that you had your A self, which was you before chronic pain. And then there's your B self, which is you now. That three weeks during that pain clinic is to figure out your C self. Yeah. What's the next version? It's not going to be A, but it's not going to be B either. And, and I see people businesses, my partners, my clients included, trying to figure out how to make B permanent or they're trying, they're just waiting to go back to A. Right. Right. They're white knuckling it. Like yeah. any day now, this is going to be over. Right. And I don't think either one of those is a solution. Oh, I really I don't. love that. Well, I can't wait to facilitate that conversation with my leadership team, figure <laughs> out what our self is going to be. We'll get back to the rest of the interview in just a minute. But first, I want to tell you about our sponsor, Symantle. I happen to know a thing or two about them because I'm one of the owners. Symantle is an industrial consumer marketing firm with an obsessive focus on customer experience. We not only execute killer marketing campaigns, but we help organizations align around goals, audiences, messages, channels, and tactics to create more than campaigns, but programs that align to business strategies. Symantle has 40 years experience crafting positive, engaging customer experiences at every point in the consumer journey. And if you like what you hear on this podcast, head to symantle.com slash blog for more content. You'll find articles, tips and tricks, do-it-yourself tools, webinars, and more to help you keep learning and growing right along with us. All right. In the few minutes we have left, these are questions that I ask almost everybody who comes on the show. What is a piece of advice or core truth that you would leave us with? A piece of advice or a core truth. I think people are happiest when they are authentic. And the work for you to do here is to find out how to live the most congruent life you can. I love that. I just exchanged some emails this morning with my partners and said, when we find that intersection between what we love to do, what we're good at, and where we can make money... That's what feels most authentic and that's what people want to buy. So that's one way that that applies, I know, to my world, but it's something that we all have to strive for every day. Yeah. Question. What's a question that's been ruminating in your brain right now that we could pass on to our listeners to think about? The big thing that I've been asking myself and that I've been asking people that I work with is how will you create that C? How will you create that new reality for you? And how will you resist? the temptation to fill your life back up because this COVID has given us space. It's given us a lot of space and it makes me sad to see people waste that space. So what safeguards will you put in place to not just refill your life, but instead to look at the things that authentically are true for you And fill your life with those things and not the things that just kind of happened to fall into your lap along the way. I love that. My coach forced me the other day. She said, visualize a perfect day. Now, why can't you make that your day? And it's like, oh, I think sometimes we always have excuses of how our calendar manages us or the obligations we have, but we have such an opportunity to reinvent ourselves right now and hold ourselves accountable to that authentic self. Yeah. Use it as an excuse. That's the other thing. Like, let this be your excuse. Sometimes you just need an excuse to say, yeah, this ain't working for me. And if it's not working, then don't do it. it. This yeah. is it. Like this is, we don't, this is the only one we get, right? Yeah. This is not a dress rehearsal. All the cliches are true. The chances of you dying one in one, like a hundred percent. No one gets out alive. 100%. So live the life that is significant and meaningful for you. 
Yeah. And you get to decide. I didn't know that for a long time, but now I get it. I encourage everyone around me to make those choices. I love that. All right, Janae, well, you are the best. I think I'm talking to you even later today. I am so excited to have met you and continue this relationship. And thank you for all the good you do in the world. You are one amazing human. Oh, I appreciate you saying that. That fills up my tank. <laughs> good. It's a good deposit. I might take a deposit later. Yeah, right. That's right. Way to be a deposit in my yeah. life today. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll talk to you soon. Thank you again. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, there you have it. Episode one of season three. As I stated from the outset, in the era of COVID, Janae's lessons resonated with me deeply. Her ideas about how all of us need to be thinking about connection and community are making me really dig deep and find myself determined not to just go back to what was, but to reinvent our priorities and focus, remembering what problems we were hoping to solve in the first place and creatively solutioning from there. I want that for you too. This is an important conversation as we all seek to help our teams take care of themselves and their families so they can do the work of the day. This theme comes up a lot this season. Not something you'd expect for a marketing show, I guess. That said, there's data out there that would tell you that we as marketers have some pretty demanding jobs. Our industry isn't slowing down, so neither are we. Janae is a breath of fresh air as she reminds us that while it is important to grow and change personally, What's perhaps equally, if not more important, is how we connect with others. That takes slowing down, having some vulnerability with where we're struggling, and simply asking others, are you okay? Janae is someone we can learn so much from. She has a way of phrasing things that we know to be true, but just sometimes we forget. If you haven't already looked her up, you can find Janae at JanaeFrom.com or at AwesomeClimbs.com. We'll link to these profiles on our website at MarketingSweats.com, or you can find us at Samantle.com, where we promote the podcast and tell a little more about each interviewee. Thanks again for tuning into this season. On our next episode, I'll be talking to Jack Cluse, industry media icon, retired from Publicis Group. He'll share lessons of leadership and life, and you'll get an inside view into what it's like to manage some of the world's biggest media budgets. Talk soon, marketers. Don't forget to give me a review and download all of season three as they're released. I appreciate you for listening, and I'd love to hear what you think. 